Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host this afternoon. And with me, as usual, is the lovely yellow player, my wife, Haley. <gasps> I'm lovely. Only today. Every day. It's pretty much every episode at yeah. this point. We are the Malthouse Games Podcast. We talk about board games, card games, tabletop games, RPGs, things of that sort, as well as beer. And that's what we do. Let's go ahead and crack one of our beers while we're getting the banter started today. We're doing it. We're diving right in today. We're diving right in. So the beers today are a special beer. Uh, I'm going to give a shout out to Mac and Cass and say thank you guys for being awesome friends and just being great people, I think. And thank you, Cass, for being an epidemiologist during the global pandemic and saving lives and That's being for sure. awesome. That's for sure. But these beers today are made by a personal friend of theirs. They are homebrews where uh, the guy who created them had his own little label printed with an image I guess he designed. And so he's got them on the bottles here, which I think is really cool. I did not catch his name that I remember. Why don't I message Mac real quick? You message Mac, and when we get it, we will announce and say his friend blank. Uh, obviously, we're not going to use a last name. This is his brown honey ale. Uh, the ingredients are water, alfalfa honey, malt extract, honey grains, hops, and yeast. Now, remember, yes, we are vegan, but we still eat honey. So we're fine with anything with honey in it. I said, howdy, Mac. Who is your friend who brewed the beers? So hopefully he gets back to us. He probably should have done this research beforehand, but we were like, oh, let's, let's, let's do this guy's beers for the podcast. And we didn't even think, oh, this is a homebrew. We can't really Google who, is it, who it is. I'm sure if we, like, Facebook stalked enough, we're both millennials. I mean, we both have had friends who we've had to Facebook stalk people for them. That's true. So I'm sure we could figure it out. Probably. Plus the guy's picture is kind of on the lo- label. That's also true. So it's got a good color to it. This is the honey brown ale. Uh, you can see reflection through it. It's not hazy. It's a nice, you know, a uh, little bit lighter amber color. Has a very good head. It's got a good smell. Mm-hmm. You can smell a bit of that honey in there. That's good. Yeah, it smells very good. Let's give it a taste. Not too bad. There's a little bit of a tartness to it. It's very crisp. It is very crisp. Yeah, the carbonation's just about right. It's not too much. There's a flavor I cannot put my finger on. And on reading on the bottle, he does have malt extract. So it's not a full grain homebrew, which is by far the most expensive and complicated way to go. I guess I should say most expensive in terms of equipment. But a malt extract means it's either a liquid malt or a dry malt. I'm not versed enough, well enough, in homebrew to be able to distinguish by taste. But... Uh, What this means is, if you at home ever want to brew beer, you can buy homebrew kits, do a batch just on your stove. You basically brew it really thick and heavy and add water to thin it out, and then let it ferment and do it at home. I've done that before. And this, from the looks of it, this is what uh, has been done here. But this one's pretty good. His name is Garrett, and he is on YouTube as Man Made Mead. Man Made Mead, that's right. Mac told me that. Forgot about that. So this is Garrett's brew. He did a pretty good job. Yeah, you get there's a little bit of tartness in there somewhere. But all in all, I think it's pretty solid. I don't have any complaints for it. For uh in terms of home brewing things, anytime you use either dry malt extract or just a like a liquid malt extract, there's always going to be something different about it compared to full grain, and it's something you get used to as you homebrew or taste more and more homebrews that you can usually tell when it's not full grain. But it's not like it's a bad thing. It's just a difference in flavor. And I can tell that this is a homebrew beer. But it is, it's is—it's very good. It's very light. It's crisp. I like that. I do, too. I'm excited to try the second one later because that one's Mac's favorite. 
But yeah, he did a really great job. No, yeah, Delton so there I, we go. Delton and I were talking with Brian this morning uh, after jujitsu, which I'll get to. And we were talking about like the apocalypse and like what were to happen in the apocalypse, how we would survive. And we were talking about like Delton's ability to brew beer. That's going to be our currency in the apocalypse. Delton's beer brewing. Like we need some vegetables. Yeah, you want some beer? Hey, we need some pants. Hey, you want some beer? Like that is going to be our apocalypse currency right there. That's what we'll do. That is what we'll do. <laughs> so when the apocalypse comes, you guys need a fix. Just let us know. We'll hook you up. We'll need some food, but we'll yeah, hook you up. Exactly. <laughs> well, until we get further into banter, I'm going to go ahead and shout out our amazing Patreon backers. Thank you, Allison, Alan, Jesse, Catherine, and Cliff. You all are awesome. If you would like to be like them and support us at the level that you get a shout out on either social media, videos, Twitter, or all of the above, check out patreon.com slash malthousegames, M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S games. But yes, we could use homebrew currency. Something I want to do when it gets closer to the fall and it starts to cool off a bit is do a full grain batch of homebrew beer because I have the equipment to do the most complicated style of brewing. You know what I mean? The, the full grain everything. I have all the equipment. It's just the fact of having the time, the space, and uh, I guess just the the will to want to spend that much time doing it. So I remember whenever you did a brew with your professor, Dr. Law, and it took them all freaking day, but they did a five gallon, they each came home with a five gallon carboy of, was it a brown ale? It was George Washington's recipe, right? So it wasn't the Washington recipe. It was um, some Christmas ale recipe, though. The Dr. Law had came up with. We had had the George Washington Porter before at his house, but what it was is we did a brew day and Dr. Law had a setup to do 25 gallons at a time. So we did 50 gallons of beer that day, two full brew processes in one day where we all took home five gallons and Dr. Law kept several. Oh, it just tasted like brown sugar. It was amazing. It was an amazing beer. It was a fun experience and it taught you so much. It taught you not only that there are complexities that go into brewing beer, but it also taught you that it can actually be fairly simple once you know what you're doing. It's like, here's the time and the boil. I put this stuff in. Here's what we do here. Just be careful. Make sure everything's sanitized. And you're like, oh, well, that wasn't too bad. So it's good. But what I want to do is in the fall, I want to brew because, by golly, I've got that garage clean. We have the garage clean. By we, I mean Delton. I kind of sat in the chair and learned how to grow mushrooms. Haley, I had her come out to help me build a workbench. I don't know if we talked about this last episode. It took me three hours where I thought it was going to be 30 minutes because every piece that connected to another one had two bolts, screw, or sorry, bolts, nuts, and washers. And that one piece connected to two others. So that's four bolts, nuts, and washers. And it was just a disaster to get through in three hours. But by golly, that garage is the cleanest it's ever been. We have a new garage door and motor now, finally. Thank you, Dad, because. He was happy enough to share some of his retirement <laughs> money from work with us, which is great. His severance package. Yeah, from his severance package. So I'm very, very excited. So we need to add this to the definition book. We need to add Delton time. Because anytime Delton says something's oh, yeah. going to take 30 minutes, it takes three hours. That's true. Whether it's building the workbench, cleaning the garage, getting ready for work, getting his socks on. Getting his socks on can be. I said, it'll take me two minutes. No, it's at least going to take 12. No. Because he gets distracted, then he puts his sock on, and he's like, oh, it's touching my foot wrong. He's got to take it off. Oh, my God, it has a hole in it. I got to get me a new sock, but I won't throw it away. I'm just going to put it in the dirty clothes, because today I don't feel like wearing a holy sock, but tomorrow I might. It's pretty accurate, actually. It really is. <laughs> After eight years together, I think I know you pretty well. Definitely. 
But yes, the garage, I think I spent almost 12 hours cleaning it and organizing it and throwing stuff away, breaking down cardboard boxes, cleaning out the shed to move the garden tools. It's been a crazy amount of work we've put in getting that thing cleaned up, but it's so nice now to have a new motor. I can open and close it with my phone. Ugh, it's great. Like, this is not board game podcast content, but by golly, I'm excited. And I am happy for you. And I'm happy for me, too, because I can park my car in the garage now. Yeah, we can both do it without anything obstructing us. So aside from that, so we've been we've been cleaning the garage. We've been doing hood rat stuff with our friends. I've been doing jujitsu with Brian. Brian's been giving me some lessons on it. I have bruises all over my arms and legs in places that I didn't really think was possible to get a bruise. I went to go wash what I thought was dirt off my foot the other day. There was a giant bruise covering half of my foot. I was like, when did that even happen? And so that's what we've been doing. Cleaning the garage, learning self-defense, creating a homestead garden, becoming self-reliant. Ready for the apocalypse. Developing our currency. That's what we need to do. Aside from that, it's been just normal life as is and trying to get board games in where we can. Speaking of which... Oh, here's the door. It's straight ahead. It's... It's a game. So the board game for today is one that I've purchased a while ago. Have never gotten around to it because I've always been told that it was complicated. And it is, but it's not as complicated as I was led to initially believe. The game today is Heaven and Ale. Heaven and Ale is put out by Eger Spiele. Uh, the game design is Andreas Schmidt and Michael Kiesling. Illustrations and graphics are Fiora GmbH. Those are actually the letters. I don't know what they stand for. I wish I knew what they stand for. I should Google these things. Development is Victor Kobilke and Philippa Schmidt. Rulebook and rulebook layout is Philippa Schmidt, and rulebook revision is Neil Crowley and Victor Kobilke. It's probably Kobilka. Probably pronouncing that incorrectly because this is a German company. And we are American. And we are American. So, Heaven and Ale is appropriate for us because beer. It's also appropriate because it is a game where essentially you are running a monastery that is brewing beer, so you have monks that you can use to help you work. Fun fact about me, my all-time favorite styles of beers are Trappist beers. Preferably quadruples. I like triples. I like doubles. They also happen to be the most expensive beers. They do because, and this is going to be another fun beer fact, uh, you may see a beer that is an Abbey style. That is just fine. That is 100% okay. However, if you see a beer that is a Trappist beer, there is actually some sort of rule in the brewing naming labeling that for a beer to be labeled as a Trappist beer it must actually be being produced by monks in a monastery, and there's all kinds of like regulation behind using the term Trappist. Because isn't like an abbey a Trappist style, but yeah, generally. not created by actual monks? So like, like Sierra Nevada, they used to have the Ovila Quad was an abbey-style quadruple. They could not say Trappist-style because Trappist is specifically, there's like only 12 Trappist monasteries and it's a, it's a certain thing you have to do. There was a brewery in the Northeast that tried to use the term Trappist, and they ended up having to change their name. That's wild. It, it's just not allowed. And Trappist style, it's my favorite. That's where Chimay comes from. You get Trappist Rockfort, and they're 10. Uh, they have, you know, just the, like 7, 9, 10, or whatever. Uh, they get those beers. I mean, there's all kinds of great beers in Trappist style. It's my favorite. That 10 tastes like ethanol. Oh, it's amazing. Just solid ethanol. Like, I can take a lot of beer. I can take strong beers. I mean, we've done a podcast where we reviewed... Like 130 beers now. I like strong beers. Oh my God, but I cannot take a ethanol flavored beer. It's only like 11% alcohol. I... 
It is 11% with a burn in the back. But anyway, back to the game. Heaven and Ale. So Heaven and Ale is a very interesting style of game. I don't think I've played one that works in the same manner as this one. So the way it works is there's a central main board. That central main board you'll have a single worker on. And that worker is going to move down the board, allowing you to purchase uh, different hex tiles. Those tiles can go on your own personal player board, and they're either going to give you money or they're going to give you essentially resources for your brewery to utilize. So on your personal player board, you have the spot where you place these tiles. Now, there's not only resource tiles of the different colors. You've got the grains, the hops, the yeast, the water but you also can get monks that are going to do special things. Well, on your player board, the spots that they can go, it's split into two. It has a shady side and a sunny side. The shady side is cheaper to put these goods and monks into, but they're only really good for gaining more money. The sunny side is more expensive by double, but it's going to actually move your resources up the track. So it's kind of an interesting play immediately. It's do I pay more to, at the end of the game, have a higher chance at good points, or do I pay less to get more money now? And the paying more, it's kind of like aging your beer is what it... Sort of, yeah. Enough. Sort of, yeah. Uh, so you can do that. On your player board, there's also a track. You have the five different resource types, which are wood, yeast, hops, water, barley. Those five types all have a little token on this track. At the end of the game, all of those are going to use a conversion ratio depending on some other things. They're all going to end up basically within one to two spaces of each other. And that's going to dictate the number that you multiply by another number to get your points. Because you also have a head brewmaster that moves up that track. The higher he gets, the lower the conversion rate is for those resources moving together. So essentially, if your head brewmaster is very high on the track, you're going to get better points. If he's lower, you're going to get lower points. It's that simple. However, you want all of your resources as high as you can get them. And you want that brewmaster as high as you can get him up the track. So putting things on the expensive sunny side of your player board is very critical in this game for actually gaining points. It's very weird, and I don't want to go too into the details of it because it is easy to get lost on this one without seeing it in front of you and having it more easily explained. Uh, there are also some one-time goals in this game. I guess I should say two-time goals. First person to takes it gets four points. Second place person gets two. You can choose when you go for those, that kind of thing. The only other big thing... Uh, I should mention before I go to sort of how you gain a lot of your points and get close to those is there are spots on your player board you cannot put tiles on that are for sheds. Once they're surrounded by tiles, whether it be monks or resources, you then, depending on the value of the resources around it, get to place a shed, which allows you to activate tiles around it, which can give you money or move that resource style up the track, things like that. Now, during the game, around the main board where you move your worker, there are some purple scoring discs. You can choose those discs to do a few different things on your personal player board, but essentially, when you choose those discs, you either choose a type of resource, like the barley or the yeast or the water, or you can choose a value of the resource, because they all are valued between one and five, or you can choose a different type of monk, because there are is there four different types of monks. Four different monks, three of each monk. And three of each monk? Okay. Or you can choose a type of monk, and when you put your little purple disc on it, it's done for the rest of the game. You can never put your purple disc on that again, but you immediately get a reward based on what's on your board, whether it is 
tiles in that value or number of tiles of that certain resource type or how many monks you have. So there's a whole lot that kind of goes into this. It's really built around planning and, you know, being cautious about how you spend your money, where you spend your money, how you set your board up, and how you select and choose where these scoring discs go. This really has nothing to do with the gameplay, but I really appreciated in the rules that the pronouns are her. I actually did too. It like it didn't catch me off guard immediately, but when I noticed it, I immediately went, oh, I like that. Yeah. Just because it's, you know, somebody's pushing the boundary the other direction. Instead of just doing the smart thing, which is the player, that's the easiest thing. The player can do this. The player can then do this. Or player A can do this. Or you can do this. You know, if they just avoid pronouns altogether, it makes it so simple. But, but you know, I, under, I understand that. And like, that's what I hope games would do. But yes, for, this I like game, this. for this game, though, um, you're, you're talking about a Travis brewery. You're talking yeah. about monks. Monks are all male. Yeah. On the cover of the box are three monks that are, that are brewing. However, the inclusion of one female who looks like she is purchasing it on the cover of the box, as well mm-hmm. as using the um, she, her pronouns in the rule book, mm-hmm. it, it makes it more inviting yeah. to women. That makes sense, because beer is generally a divisive thing in our culture. Of The men drink the beer, the women drink wine. That's generally... Right. For America, which is kind of funny because every other, like all the European places, you go to France or Italy or Greece, everybody drinks wine. So it's kind of funny that it's that way. But yes, I, I understand that. That's it. That is, uh, I didn't realize she was purchasing the beer. I mean, that's, that's what cool. I see it that's as. What, that is kind of what it looks like. Yeah. And, and so like that automatically makes it more inclusive that they, they included a woman on it. Because it'd be really easy to pull a uh, Istanbul. Is right? Yeah, Istanbul. It's got like 88 depictions and they're all male. Um, and they're all male. And so like ever since we discovered that, I haven't wanted to play it. It's, it's a good game. It's a good game, but like when I saw and I realized there's 88 depictions of males and no females, I'm like, all right, I, I mean, I'm just off put by it. And I know that's silly. I know that's minuscule. It has nothing to do with the gameplay, but just not putting that thought into it, it yeah. just automatically turned me off. And so with this game, even though, you know, I, I like the style of the game no matter what, and I probably would have still played it, just having that woman on the front cover, like putting purposely putting in that inclusivity and plus using the she pronouns in the rule book automatically, I was like, okay. Mm-hmm. I feel I feel like this game was also made for me. That makes sense. You would be amazed, and I don't think you realize this, how much when I'm reading a rule book and learning the rules that I negate that pronoun. There's so many books that say he, and I will just say the player, or I'll say, like, you know, or they can do Whenever this. Whenever you're teaching. Whenever I'm teaching. Yeah. I'll try to avoid those. because I appreciate that. And it's, it's, it's part of the fact of, yes, making it feel more inclusive, but also the fact of, like, it's not hard to change that language. And I think this is an example of them saying, look, it can be done. It's fine. Yeah. People, lo- people like this game. Heaven and Ale is not like an, a game that nobody enjoys and nobody bought. It's a popular game from what I understand. So that's definitely something that's nice about it. I also will say I really like the graphic design and the look of the game because it is very, you know, medieval looking artwork that you would think somebody would draw in like a illuminated manuscript maybe or something and then they've just added color like really bright color to it see it looks like a uh, stained glass to me like yeah, the stained it does glasses have a little bit churches, of that look. The, the really uh really detailed ones yeah yeah it really does it looks really cool i really like the look of it but hopefully i haven't c- extremely confused you on how this game plays uh but we just really enjoyed it i really enjoyed it now we read a rule completely wrong i did but I'm kind of okay with it because it made me get a really big score both times. Yeah, so I've went into my app now that keeps track of our scores and marked both of those games as ignore for statistics. Excuse me. Because they were Excuse way me. wrong. All right, listen here, Vicky Guerrero. Example of Vicky Guerrero. <laughs> Excuse me. 
Excuse me. Oh my god. All of our <laughs> listeners just stopped listening. All right. Anyway, yes, there is a rule in the game. They use two terms that are confusing, and this is one of my biggest criticisms is they use the term activated and they use the term triggered. When you do a certain thing, it triggers something and then that triggered thing can activate. So when you place a purple scoring disc, you move your worker onto it, take it, and you place it on one of your monk symbols on your board, which showing you're utilizing that specific type of monk. When you do that, that triggers the monk. That triggered monk now activates every tile or monk or whatever, every tile around him. Activating a monk does not make it activate other monks. Only triggering the monk makes it activate the other monks. So it's this weird thing where it's very easy to mess that rule up, and that's what we did. So we had it where instead of one monk of the type you select being uh, triggered, he's going to activate a monk next to him. Normally, that should just move the brewmaster, your head brewmaster, up on the track by one. But we were playing it where when that monk was triggered, he activated the one next to him, which was activating everything next to him, which would hit another monk, which would activate that. And it chained off to where Haley was getting like 80 money a turn. It was real nice. It was really nice for her, but it was extremely wrong. And it wasn't until I watched the Rado runs through uh, like his final thoughts, because I was thinking something has to be off. I'm missing something. I mean, and I think we sure should house enough, rule it that way. I'm just saying. I'm going to say no. And here's why. So in the game, whenever you're choosing what space you want to buy, or if you want to buy a monk or take a point token, you're doing this around, you know, just a track from point A to point B. You go from the beginning all the way around to you land back on the beginning. Sort of like go on Monopoly, but you have to stop on it. Now, here's the thing. You can jump from the start all the way to the end and just void the rest of your turns. So you don't have to go space to space to space. You choose how far forward you want to go, and it just goes around the table. You don't have to pass the person that's ahead of you. You just have to move your piece forward by at least one. So what Haley was able to do was jump to the monks, skipping all the other stuff that I was going for, and then that was able to make her set up a plan that just wrecked my face. You had to be, like, you had to be honest. Like, it was a great strategy. It was a great strategy. I didn't think she would go so ham into it. <laughs> but the thing about it is, now that we know that that's wrong, it does not make the monks overvalued. And it it's not doesn't mean that you're going to just jump ahead. And it's not going to be as feel-bad. Like, to me, that was a very feel-bad moment of, if you go first, you take the first monk, it's like, okay, well, I either go to the second monk, which means I skip half of the options on the board, or I go to set up a little bit and hope I can do something. And then you jump to the next monk, and it's like, well, now I have to skip three-fourths of the board to get another monk. So it was one of those things where to me it felt bad. However, now that the rule's corrected, I think that that will automatically correct itself in its uh in how it comes across. You have to know by how many jujitsu bruises I have, I go ham and everything. That's true. That's very true. <laughs> I'm trying to think if we missed anything about Heaven and Ale. Um it's huh? it's hard to describe kind of. Like over audio, this is one of the more difficult games to really get across how it's played. I think you did a good job though. Basically, you, you go around a track, you can skip over turns, but if you don't skip over turns, you get to take more turns, and you get stuff to make beer, and to get money, and to take over the world, and it's awesome. Yeah, good enough that's, for me. That's the Haley, <laughs> Haley description. I really liked Heaven Nail. I think it's a good game. I think it's a solid mechanic. It's a theme that, even being one of those Euro-style games that you could take the theme completely out or make it anything else, it would work, so the theme's not, like, ingrained into it. It's still a theme that I personally like a lot, which is half of the reason I wanted to buy the game is because I like this theme. I like the idea of 
you know, monks in a monastery brewing beer to earn funds for their monastery. It's a real thing we have, and my favorite beers come from exactly that. So I really liked that about it. Now, after playing it and having the experience of going through it, even with incorrect rules, I think it's a game I really like, and I want to try it with more players. Same here. So I can destroy them. Like I did Delton. Because I did so efficiently. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So the topic for today is going to be efficiency in games. And this is something that, honestly, we struggled to come up with a topic for Heaven and Ale. Beer is something we talk about every single episode. So that really wasn't something that we were like, hey, let's make a topic about beer. It's like, well, that's not helpful. Like, how do we do it? How do we describe this game? What kind of game is this? You're buying tiles, okay? You move up a track. Lots of games have tracks. We could talk about tracks. But what it came down to for us was this is a game that's built for efficiency. This game lives as being efficient. It is. How efficient can you be? And a lot of games are that way. And you can say that about any resource management game because that's when you're managing resources, it's about being efficient with said resources. But something about the way this game presents itself and the choices you have to make, it feels like if you make one wrong step and your efficiency starts to drop, it can be really hard to come back from that. It kind of builds your your points earning and your money earning exponentially. And so if you get off track, if you have a couple of bad turns, then that's going to affect you for the rest of the game because you're constantly building on those. Because the more green tiles you have, the more green tiles you can activate. The more number fours you have, the more number fours you can activate. And if you utilize those activations too early in the game, like if I activate number four and if I only have two fours, then later in the game when I have eight fours, I can't use that. So I have to be able to activate my resources at the right time to collect them, but not activate them too early so that way I can build off of them and get more later on. That's exactly it. This game is built around choices of how early do I do something. And it is. It's it's about being efficient with those choices. And you have so much money to begin with. It's only like $25, 25 I think, yeah. whatever the, the money currency is called. You have 25 And then you spend that in the first round. And you're like, oh, I need money. Well, now I have to utilize these scoring things. Well, I only have two fours, like your example. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. I've got three blue tiles. I guess I could use those. Oh, but one of them's on the sunny side. So that doesn't actually give me money. And there's so many things. And the problem is, is money's only half the game. Moving up that track is the most critical thing you have to do, but you can only do it through smart utilization of your money. And it's just amazing how much efficiency is so important. It takes a lot of planning. This is one of those games where I sat and I would look at my turns three or four moves in advance. And so whenever Delton was taking his turn, you know, I was calculating, okay, if he goes here, I need to go to this spot. If he doesn't go there, then I can go there. So you're you're having to sit and think between your turns. If your spot is taken, what are you going to do? You have to think think in multiple directions two or three turns in advance, and so you are engaged throughout the other player's turn. One thing I do like, and I'm going to say this about the game, I know we're technically past the game into topic, but it ties in too perfectly for this topic, is whenever, if you're looking at your turn and say, well, I really want that green three, if he takes the green three, then I'm going to have to take that blue two. That's what I'm going to want. The good thing is, even if I take all of those, you can jump as far ahead as you want, which, again, it comes down to efficiency. Now you're passing things to help build an engine just to make sure you get certain pieces. And how important are those pieces? You, you know, have a lot of anxiety in this game. Like, yes, as a, an yes. Indri- like, you have a lot of anxiety in this game. 100%. Like, 
but I need that piece. But they could totally jump ahead and get it. If I jump ahead and get it, then I can secure it. But I'm losing all these other pieces. So you're just like watching the other person and trying to size up what they're going to do. I think this is going to be wonderful when we play with multiple players. I think so. It's so interesting. But I do that efficiency. Every game that we play that has efficiency, I tend to be bad at, right? I love resource management games. I love worker placement games, which tend to be about efficient placement of your workers. I love um, deck builders. Deck builders, you have to thin your deck. You have to pick the right cards that are going to actually move your plan forward. All of that, and I'm bad at them. But this has been one that the efficiency is what the game is about. Would you call point salad efficiency? I think, yeah, uh, well, the, the game point salad? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I think the hard part there is there's a big difference between the choices in each. Point salad, you have so few choices, right? You either take two of six cards or one of three, and that's it. That's pretty much your choices that are on the board. And that's a really tough place to be in at the time because it's so reactive. This is not nearly as reactive because the beginning of every round you add new tiles to the board, you add the monks to the board, you refill the point thingies, and then you go. So you have all your options on the uh, table and you can skip as many as you want. You can choose not to skip. You can choose what to do. And there's so many options and paths to take and things to go for and the different value of sheds. Like I didn't discuss in the sheds in the game, whenever you build a shed, there's four different values of sheds. Each one activates more tiles around it, which is going to help you get more money, move up the track, things like that. And I feel like there's so many choices that this is really about analyzing everything and making the efficient move, where something like point salad is more of a reactionary thing. See, I disagree. Okay. I think that it's more of an efficiency game because whenever you get the card, let's say you get a scoring card, Mm -hmm. you have to determine, you know, am I going to allocate my resources towards that scoring card? Or am I going to flip that scoring card over and use it to fill other scoring cards? Like you okay. only have a set number of things that you can use and you have to determine, yeah. am I going to go for lots of different goals? Or am I going to go for a couple of goals and use my goal cards for uh, for points? Because like in, in point salad, I know we've covered it before, one side of the card is a goal, the other side is the vegetable. Mm-hmm. And so you can choose the vegetables or you can choose the uh, the goal side. You can switch the goal side to a vegetable, but you can't choose switch the vegetable to the goal side. So you have to make a choice. You have to think, okay, what am I going for? Am I going to tailor it? Because if I go for a card that gives me three points for carrots, but negative one for onions, you know, that really tightens what I can do. Mm-hmm. And so you're having to be efficient with your, with your cards and with your points because you can't go for all of them. But if you go for too little, then you're not going to get enough points. I see that. I, I guess I just don't see it focusing on efficiency as hard as this. Well, no, not as hard as it okay. might. Yeah, I, I see what you're saying, though. Yeah, it is about being efficient with your choices, which I think yeah. a lot of games are that way. I really do. I just feel like heaven and ale, it's the focus of the game. But what is it about efficiency that is so intriguing as a game like focus? I think because you have to think three or four uh, turns in advance. Anytime you have an efficiency game, mm-hmm. because you're, you're looking at, okay, how many resources do I have now? How do I get more resources? How can I chain this turn onto the next turn? Because a lot of the efficiency games, like, yes, you, you can kind of affect how I play. Um, because you can take a spot that I want to, but at the same time, uh, I'm still responsible for my own board. You can't like mess up my board on me. And so I have to think ahead three or four moves and I have to think about different alternatives because you, that's what keeps you so engaged in the game. You have to do that. It's just like with, oh my goods, you have to think three yep. or four turns in advance and you have to like part of it. No, oh my goods, you have to take chances of, you know, will these resources be available next time? But you, you have to think 
so far in advance in order to make sure that you're running a, a tight ship. Because if you just went turn by turn and you're not thinking about what are the long-term consequences of this or how am I building myself up for in the future, then you're going to stagnate. You're not going to earn as many points. Yeah, that's very true. That's very true. And this, this does that exactly. But that is fun with efficiency. It's keeping an eye on what's coming and trying to decide how quickly do I go for something. I don't know. There's something fun about it. Just, I mean, it, in itself, it's fun. However, it can be frustrating as well because it is a game about planning. Like a lot of games have strategy and long-term planning, but something about games that really focus efficiency, it makes it a point to really long-term plan. And those can be frustrating if your plan falls apart for some reason. However, in a game like Heaven and Ale, it doesn't like since no one can really mess your plan up that badly, it feels a lot nicer. Yeah. I do feel like the efficiency games are the ones that seem to frustrate you the most. Yes. 100%. Because I'll have a plan. I'll have an idea. Someone will take the one piece that I needed. Nothing else is good enough. And now I'm mad because I just, I, I completely missed out on it. So I like, I like being able to actually put together a plan and put together an engine and get my strategy going. And whenever something can interrupt that, that's even if it's dictated by the game or by another player, it's frustrating. You know, I think it just depends on how the experience is presented. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. What's another efficiency game, would you say? I mean, like you said, pretty much any, pretty much any big strategy game is built on efficiency. Like one of the big ones for me uh, that comes to mind immediately is going to be like Concordia, mm -hmm. right? Concordia is built on, okay, where am I putting these? How good are the cards I'm using? How can I utilize building and moving and building and doing this to get points? Same with Viticulture. Viticulture is another one where if you're not acting very efficiently and you're missing out on spots because other players take them, it's going to set you back. And I, I feel like those are two big, two big ones. I think the biggest thing with, with efficiency is having multiple different ways to reach your goal. Having multiple different like goals. Always have a plan B. Always have a plan B. Yeah. Especially when you're playing with multiple players. Because yep. odds are, at least once in the game, your plan A is going to be foiled. Yeah. Like whether that's in Viticulture, whether that's in Heaven and Ale. It's or whether that is in point salad. Mm -hmm. At one time, your plan is going to get foiled. So don't, don't marry yourself to just one, one turn, one goal per turn. I think that's, a good, I think that's a, good, uh, a good plan for any game that focuses on efficiency, for sure. And most games, probably. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Before we get to the question of the episode, let's drink another beer. So as I'm cracking this other beer, I'm going to say one last thing about efficiency. I'm bad at it, but I like it. <laughs> I think that's pretty much it. See, I feel like efficiency is my my number one. It's, I feel it's like your that's jam. the one I'm, I'm best at. It's your jam for sure. So this second beer, it's by Garrett as well as we talked about. Uh, this is Mima's Special Stout. It is a oatmeal raisin cookie stout. Uh, the ingredients are oats, malt extract, grains, raisins, cinnamon sticks, vanilla extract, yeast, and of course, hops. Oh, hell yeah, brother. The literal cookie right there. All right, so this one has exactly what you want from an oatmeal stout. It is very, very dark. You can barely get any light from around the edges. Dark as night. Mmm, smells like it, a cookie. It smells sweet, and you can definitely smell the raisin. It smells like an oatmeal raisin cookie. It, re it really does. Mmm. Mmm. That it's, is really good. It's very, very sweet. 
It's very raisiny. There's a very rich, there's a lot of raisin in this. I feel like it's like the bite of the oatmeal raisin cookie where all, you know, whenever you're making oatmeal raisin cookies and like the very last cookie has like 47 raisins because they're yeah. the ones that didn't mix in. Yeah. I feel like you're eating the cookie that has the 47 raisins in it. It's <laughs> That last bite of just pure raisin it's almost. It's just raisin with a little bit of, of cookie and cinnamon and sugar. It's definitely very strong raisin. The smell even smells raisin. Mm-hmm. It's got a good mouthfeel to it. It's not too thick. But it's not porter thin. Like, right. It, it, it feels like a stout. It has the, the retention, head retention of a stout, mouthfeel of a the, stout. The tart and tang of a raisin. Yes, it has a very, very good raisin profile. Like, if you wanted to call this a raisin, what, it says oatmeal, oatmeal raisin cookie. Oh, wrong one. Meemaw's. Meemaw's special stout, oatmeal raisin cookie stout. I think that is accurate. Yes, it's I, very good. And I, I do like the aspect of the cookie element, the little bit more cinnamon involved and the vanilla. I think that adds a little bit of a. A different flavor than you're used to in an oatmeal stout. And it rounds it out really well. Because you have the tartness of the raisin at first, but then you have the finish of the vanilla. You really do. And there's just a little bit of cinnamon in the very, very aftertaste and some in the middle even. Mm-hmm. I think I think this is the better of the two. I think Me this is very I think this is very, very good. I like that. I'm surprised how sweet. Very impressed. I wish I knew the alcohol percentage. Alcohol percentage. Oh, this yes. one this one is eight percent. Oh, lovely. And the other one was 5%. Very nice. So there you go. I didn't realize they were on there up top. That's wonderful. I mean, this doesn't taste like an 8%. It doesn't. It's very sweet, even yes. for an 8%. Like very you smooth. would You would expect it to be higher alcohol with how sweet it is. Like, it would either be lower alcohol because it's very sweet, or it would be very high alcohol because it's very sweet, which is a weird, <laughs> a weird thing, but it just depends on how you make them. But no, this is really good. I think this is super solid oatmeal stout. Same here. I should say oatmeal raisin stout. With that being said, let's move to the question. And now, join us for a Malt House Games podcast special bite-sized question. So the question for today is actually, this beer is like the perfect beer for this question. Is beer art or science? What do you think? So, I mean, obviously there's a blend here. Yeah. It's got to be both. It is more of a science than an art. There is a lot that goes into it, and every little aspect of how much do you want it to smell this way, how much do you want it to taste this way, how much do you want it to feel this way, all of that isn't answered by being creative. It's answered by science. There is a certain specific scientific reason things happen, and you can alter and push those to get it where you want it. So for me... It's definitely a science, but there is like an artistic look at that, or at least a creative look, because that science does have flexibility when it comes to beer in terms of flavor profiles, and that's just due to the abundance of different types of grain and hops and yeast and all that stuff. See, I'm going to go from the stance that it's more of an art, but then it has to have science. Okay. So kind of the, no, you were saying like it's it's science Mm -hmm. with art. I'm saying it's art with science, because like the, the original beer making was like a mistake. They're like, well, well, what kind of other stuff can we add to this to actually make it flavorful or to make it not taste like bread or to have less dirt in it? Yep. I mean, it was just like a grain mash that accidentally got fermented or in the crescent circle, it was like juices and whatnot that got wild yeast into it and then was left unattended and then bam, became wine. Mm-hmm. And so uh, you have to have the art in it or else you're just going to have one standard thing. You're going to have Bud Light. And that's it. Yeah. And so you have to have, you know, what kind of grains you're going to use? What, how do the flavors go well together? 
what does this taste like? What does it smell like? That's why you have all the creativity in the different craft beers. Mm-hmm. But you have to have the science of like sanitation of the chemistry to go behind it. But I believe that the art has to come first. You have to have the the idea of what you want, what flavor that you want, and um, how are these flavors going to go together, and then have the science to back it up. Okay, let's make this not give us botulism and actually ferment. I think that's, it's a good way to look at it, I think. What are the first three rules of brewing? Sanitization, sanitization, uh-huh. and sanitization. Yep. You nailed it in three different accented versions of the word. <laughs> <laughs> I think I mean I think that's a good way and I think I think one of the things is is in this I feel like in these definitions art is almost synonymous with creativity. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um cuz art is subjective but creativity is very close to it. I feel like in this scenario yeah. it's almost more of the look of creativity versus that. But I see what you're saying and I think it makes sense. It's like cooking chicken. Like you got to cook chicken all the way through or else you're going to get salmonella. Yeah. But if you just cook like boiled chicken, then no one's going to want to taste it. I mean that's true. It's just going to taste gross. Budweiser is the boiled chicken of beer. There you go. Nailed it. <laughs> or like Miller Lite. I don't know. Anything. But I think that that's uh, going to wrap up the episode nicely. Uh, thanks, Mac, for giving us Garrett's beer. So thanks, Garrett, for the beer. And check out Man Made Mead on YouTube. There you go. Man Made Mead on YouTube. This oatmeal raisin cookie stout's really good. Mm-hmm. Mm. This has got to be probably my favorite like homebrew that I've ever been given from someone. Same here. That's, I mean... Dr. Law is an exception. He's basically a professional. I think he finally hit his fifth 500th homebrew wow. last year. So that's like amazing. he's he's a career homebrewer. And that's like recipes he's mostly created and done. And he's done historical brew. I mean, his stuff, he should just be running a brewery at this point. But like home homebrews from friends and stuff, this is by far, I think it's my favorite. A very, plus, very Garrett. good job. Very good job. But yeah, I think that's going to wrap up the episode. I think we get to play a few games today and relax, and I've got to edit this podcast. It's Saturday, by the way. This comes out tomorrow, which is going to be July 26th. Hey, not Sunday morning. Not Sunday morning. Oh, we didn't do our our approval of the game, the two clinkies. Ah, what is it? Clink, clink. Dink. Wasn't it two? I think so. You said two clinking glasses, but then we did it twice. We clinked it and then took a drink and then did something and then clinked them, so I wasn't sure. One more time for good measure. All right, one more time. Next time, it'll just be a single clink. And Zoom then you got it. I think that that's going to wrap everything up. I'm ready for this weekend to continue and be relaxing. And I want to play some video games and some board games and watch some TV. And dig up some potatoes. And maybe dig up some potatoes. I think that works for me. So if you have any questions for us that you want us to answer on the podcast or answer through email, you can send us those. Contact at malthousegames.com. M-A-L-T-H-A-U-S games. If you want to get a hold of us on social media, we are at Malthouse Games on all social media. You can find me personally at Delton Brack, D-E-L-T-O-N-B-R-A-C-K. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. You can also send us any games you want us to look at. Just let us know what games. Say, hey, I want to hear what your guys' thoughts are on this one, and we'll see what we can do. If you have a topic you want us to cover, any of that stuff, just shoot it to that email or DM us on social media, and we can do our best. And actually, we should do that for beer, too, if you have a beer request. I mean, we've been doing this now for 71 episodes, and as Haley said, it's almost always two beers an episode. Some episodes are coffee. We've had liquor a time or two, and sometimes we do one beer or tea. So we're probably around 120, 130 beers at this point. It's a lot of beers. It's a lot of beers to be different ones. Yes. Which is crazy. But if you have a suggestion of a beer, and it's something we can get here in Oklahoma... 
let us know and we'll go search it out and find it and we'll try to get it on the podcast. I mean, we'll take free samples too. That's always on the <laughs> table. I mean, it's beer, of course. Maybe we should start doing a food with it. Ooh. Today's beer and a snack. Ooh. Oh no, you would hate me so much. I would. Oh no, I would hate you would hate yourself because then you would finally hear <laughs> Delton sounds like a cow chewing cud whenever he's watching TV and, and eating snacks. His mouth is open, his jaw goes sideways, and it's really, really It does not go sideways. <laughs> oh, stop it. Record yourself. Stop it. She's she's a friggin' turd is what it is. <laughs> I think that's everything. So so thank you again for tuning in to the Malthouse Games podcast. Please make sure to like, share, and subscribe this episode. We're still trying to grow the podcast as much as we can. And hopefully soon, we're going to get back into the heavy of social media posting. That's all. Life is weird right now. It's COVID times. We all understand that it's a strange place we live in. So hopefully social media coming back up. We want to get more people to this to listen to our podcast and hopefully enjoy it is the end goal. So make sure to do that. Like, share, and subscribe. So until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, preferably a homebrew, yeah. and play some games. We'll talk to you soon. See you later. Bye.